Bookworm Games, Episode 7, The Pursuit of Happiness. Welcome back, I'm Wesley Schantz, and this week we'll look at Tucson and Happy Happy Village, thinking about the themes of wisdom, courage, friendship we've developed a bit so far, as well as a few new spins on cats and cults, and a few other interesting parallels between these towns. First, I want to thank Steph for always listening to me read my scripts through aloud before I record. In giving talks, I find it really helps to have an audience. Just as with writing, I'm helped by a reasonable deadline. I'm really pushing it this week. I wonder if we might try some live classes on Earthbound someday, with questions and some interactions. If people seem interested, I'd love to try that. Um, I want to start by thinking a little more about the bike riding element. This uh, opportunity that Ness has briefly, which seems to make him really happy, but in a different way than having Paula around ought to make him happy. As far as games and free time and growing up, inevitably there's things you can only do alone, like reading a book or playing a one-player game. And they can be deeply rewarding, but somehow there's always the wish to be able to share them. And then in other moods, you might want nothing more than to be left alone to get to do those things, to contemplate by oneself, to practice an instrument, to compose a poem. There has to be room for that. And then there are things that, a lack of privacy that destroys, or at least it deforms and prevents them reaching their true potential. And and in our haste to enjoy them, we sometimes run the risks of distorting our own selves, casting those around us into doubt. I bring this up because I'm hoping that these transmissions and these works in progress are conducive to the sanctuary of thought for myself and for others, and not distractions from it. In my intro here, I've invited the comparison to viewing pornography, to masturbation, whether intellectual or, as the dude says, manual. It's a glaring but a little disgust, and understandably so, Uh, fact that a good deal of what people use the internet for when left to themselves is not to go in search of enlightening things to read or listen to. Though the great works of the past and the present are all pretty much freely available on there. And a whole lot of people out there are are ready to talk about them. Um, But instead, people just look at erotic images. And that's a shame. To make oneself not the town bike, but the worldwide bike written by the succubus. The parallel here with video games, I know it's a little cringeworthy, but I think it's a natural counterpart to last week's episode, which dealt with the ideal, as symbolized by the star and embodied in Paula. I think we need to consider this week how the potential for good can go so mightily astray. And partly it's brought to mind because I was remembering this article I read once and have never really been able to find since. I even emailed the author at some point or found him on Twitter and asked him about it. But in this article, Itoi compares video games to a prostitute. And I never knew what to make of that um, that comparison. So I want to try to think through here some of these ways in which good things can go bad, potential for good can devolve. Because after all, we learn not just when good things go well from ideals and role models, but from how they go wrong, from a badness that's instructive 
not only to see what not to do, but to learn about oneself, to see from your own response and your own capacity for reflection how you can step out of the situation enough to learn from it. And you can grin and bear it if that's the best you can do, or else you can speak up and try to improve on it and make it better if possible. A great deal of the boredom that I felt as a student was mitigated at least once I realized the power of psi reflection on what my teachers and or school system were doing badly. But first a certain innocence has to be lost. For one looks up to role models or despises negative ones uh, naively on the one hand or with self-awareness. And once there's self-awareness there's a responsibility there. So trying to recapture an innocent unreflectiveness might be part of the appeal of playing video games, just for fun, playing at arcade bars while drinking, as we did in Turtles in Time and the four-player Pac-Man last week. But the transformation that comes when the ideal betrays you is not something that can, then innocence is not something that can be recaptured, because you can't step in the same river twice. So turning to Earthbound, let's get into some of the reversals here. Because the second your sanctuary spot that's deep in the caves past Happy Happy Village is Lilliput Steps. And that name alludes to myths of little people, fairies, and spirits. These myths are universal, just like those of the giants. And these little steps show you you're on the right track, only they're so diminutive, whereas the first was enormous. And you can interpret this as reflecting your own growth, perhaps. The shrinking of the numinous, the magical, that go hand in hand. The specific literary reference seems to be to Swift's satiric masterpiece, Gulliver's Travels, which is chock full of reversals. You have Gulliver going to a land of giants, Bromdingnag, after first going to a land of Lilliputians. That word Lilliputian, like chortling, has entered the language thanks to its aptness, its uh, sound and sense, how they agree, seem to fit and find a place where we didn't have a good word before. Now, for all the satire on the different islands he visits, in every case the, the main butt of the joke seems to be most severely and caustically Gulliver himself, the great traveler, the sensible hero of all these fantastic adventures, turns out to be petty and cruel and short-sighted and boring Gulliver. But more than that, perhaps, the irony lies for us in a more general point here that Swift, like Shakespeare, wrote so that his work would fly off the shelves. It would thrill people. And yet now it's really, well, I don't know, seems to be hardly read, even when or perhaps because it's assigned. It seems to be enough for some people for a thing to be held up as an ideal, for them to sharpen their knives or dismiss it out of hand. Uh, one other funny connection to Lilliput Steps is in a little-known work from Tolkien's youth, his poem Goblin Feet, which he later heaped scorn upon. But nevertheless, it shows him at an early stage of poetic and creative career, with the image of the footprints, of course, connoting not only paths and journeys, and the hint of a presence that's now past, but the word feet is also used for the metrical units of traditional poetic forms. You have iambic and dactylic feet, and so on. Anyway, courtesy of TolkienGateway.net, so I can't really vouch for its accuracy, but this is a hard text to find, so 
Here's a taste of goblin feet. I am off down the road where the fairy lanterns glowed, and the little pretty flitter mice are flying. A slender band of gray, it runs creepily away, and the hedges and the grasses are a-sighing. The air is full of wings and of blundery beetle things that warn you with their whirring and their humming. Oh, I hear the tiny horns of enchanted leprechauns and the padded feet of many gnomes a-coming. Oh, the lights, oh, the gleams, oh, the little twinkly sounds, oh, the rustle of their noiseless little robes, oh, the echo of their feet, of their happy little feet, oh, the swinging lamps in the starlit globes. There's another stanza, but I'll skip to the end here. It says, Oh, the warmth, oh, the hum, oh, the colors in the dark, oh, the gauzy wings of golden honeyflies, oh, the music of their feet, of their dancing goblin feet, oh, the magic, oh, the sorrow when it dies. That last line is one of the few that doesn't have an exclamation point at the end. And I can only imagine what Freudians would do with that. But anyway, in this sense too, flaws are instructive. None more so than our own, if we can face them. The essence of the much misapplied term Socratic method, as I understand it, consists in allowing people to see their mistake in a light which is not immediately going to be catastrophic to life, limb, or to reputation. And, uh, and this is the luxury of civilization, that we're allowed to make mistakes and not die from them. <laughs> and that's kinder to the individual concerned than nature's method, which is the slow and steady process of evolution. But the responsibility of the citizen, Socrates suggests, is to care about the truth enough to question whatever seems mistaken. So, over time, Tolkien elevated his goblins into elves, and he made that last real attempt at nobility in literature. Although, uh, I do think that Philip Pullman does him one better in Lord Asriel and Lyra. Just a short passage here from his new book. This is Lord Asriel walking around with his infant daughter in the garden. At one point he seemed to be showing the moon to Lyra, pointing up at it and holding her so she could see. Or perhaps he was showing Lyra to the moon. At any rate, he looked like a lord in his own domain, with nothing to fear and all the silvery night to enjoy. It's on page 148 of La Belle Sauvage. And earlier we hear that Lyra too, quote, looked around with a lordly complacency, about 100 pages earlier on 43. Of course, this is all seen from our narrator and then from Malcolm's perspective, um, zooming in the camera on him, who earlier, as we hear, was enchanted. He was her servant for life. It's quite taken with the little baby. doesn't have a sibling of his own. Anyway, we'll talk about that in the fall, I hope. So, the vision after Giant Step was of a puppy. After Lilliput steps, it's of a baby in a red cap. So, Ness is seeing himself from an outside perspective in an inner vision, like one sees oneself in dreams. And of course, we're all the hero of our own narratives. Maybe we're all the villain, too. But it is simply affectation, of, or maybe real despair, which would lead us to claim otherwise. To say, with proof rock, no, I am not Prince Hamlet. 
in T.S. Eliot's Love Song, for example. I normally don't go straight to Lilliput Steps, because the bears down there and the end guy at the shiny doorway are just too hard, because it's much easier to come back after you've cleaned out Threed, come back on a intercity bus, or else just wait until you can teleport. But this time I wanted to do things chronologically, and so I made it through the cave, leveling up a bit, slowly, but surely. But then when I came up against Mondo Mole, slather, slavering, 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 is that a word? Slavering with toxic froth, dripping from jaws and claws, I still would have lost. But I tried pray. That's Paula's move that she alone can do. And the dazzling light came to my aid on the first try, miraculously enough. And it was like Buzz Buzz returned from the grave. So just to pick up briefly on that idea of wondering whether it's the infant being shown the moon, or the moon the infant, and to connect in with this idea of prayer, which we'll certainly talk about more. Anyway, one of Montaigne's famous turns of phrase is, When I play with my cat... Who knows if she is making more a pastime of me than I of her? I don't, or rather, I didn't, until today, know which essay that actually came from. And so I looked it up, and I intended to delve into it in this week's episode. But as I started to read this morning, I found that Book 2, Essay 12, The Apology for Raymond Sebon, where that quote comes from, is the longest essay, I think, in, in, in all of them. Um... I'd ne- I guess that's why I'd never read it before. It wasn't in my selections, because it would have been as long as pretty much all of the other selections that I've ever read, uh, just by itself. But I love to think of it, you know, just because of that cat on the roof of the Polestar Preschool. And, uh, and uh, well, it was fortunate that it occurred in the section of the, of the book that's available on Google Books, uh, Hackett edition that that translation came from, because other online copies I consulted were garbled. Anyway, I thought this connected with the pros and cons of online resources, thinking about playing with cats the way you play by yourself, uh, in the context of what seems to be a long essay on faith and doubt, this apology or defense of this theologian, Raymond Sibon, whose uh, work Montaigne has uh, translated at his father's request. Anyway, he seems to want to defend the approach that Sabon takes, this, um, this fine line between uh, reason and faith, and then, of course, Montaigne's own skeptical nature, to throw in the concept of doubt. Um, it's an extremely interesting, well, from the first 15 pages or so, <laughs> it's an extremely interesting example of human limitations. Right, This example of, of the cat, uh, that you don't even know whether it's playing with you or you're playing with it. Um, that's our limitation, but the very reflection upon it is uh, is indicative of this capacity which seems to set us apart. Though our tendency to play is shared with the beasts of the field or of the carpet. Anyway, what if the opponent you think you're toying with is toying with you? What if you think you're playing alone and there's someone watching. And not only your own conscience, or some anthropomorphized old man god in the sky, or up on the North Pole, but someone actually happens to be there. 
you could think of it as them representing that whole society who needs you to be better because itself is so corrupt. It's like that cultist peering out from behind a bush at the egg stand in Happy Happy Village. Or the boss of Berglund Park on lookout from his shack's roof. In each town you come to, just like in most games like this, there's someone there to greet you as you come into town. In Happy Happy Village, she runs over to you, and she's eerily enthusiastic. People like that, overly cheerful, always seem to give the impression they're hiding something. Perhaps unsuccessfully. Perhaps from themselves. In Tucson's name, we get a play on Tucson, Arizona. And we get the number theme continued from Onette. Rather than extending up a hill to the north, the town is clustered together, except for paths leading to Peace Forest Valley to the east, perhaps a euphemism for Death Valley, and then a long stretch of road diving straight to the south to the ghost-obstructed tunnel. That seems to exist primarily to give you a place to ride your bike up and down, and then later for you to ride on the Runaway 5 bus to give them time to properly jam. It's like an augmented form of the whistling you do on your bike. But anyway, we'll talk about that next week. So aside from Punk Shore, the bike shop, Tucson also has the first department store and the first Mr. T-looking townsperson in the game. Both will recur later on in Foresight and play a more significant role there. The hospital in the northeast corner of town will be a frequent stop as long as you find yourself getting mushroomized. I've got a little cold myself here. Uh, and navigating to it and through the lobby with the wonky controls can be a trip. It's one of the ways in which Tucson, more than Onet, helps introduce another major theme of this game. So, the ordinary being revealed as extraordinary. The extraordinary concealed and latent in the ordinary. What we might dismiss as ordinary, or rely on as ordinary, actually turning out to be quite extraordinary. What I mean by this isn't just that the way that meteorites land in your backyard and magical statues turn up in your neighbor's basement and then there you are, fighting Titanic Ant and seeing a vision at a magical location. Well, all of this is more along the lines of modern fantasy, or magical realism. Or of old romances and fairy tales, if you like. The incursion of the mythic into the everyday. The realization that these worlds overlap and interconnect in profound ways. Rather, I think things in Tucson are to all appearances quite normal. Aside from a few walking plants and fungi the odd talking mouse or psychic kid. And yet, within this very normalcy, you may begin to get a glimpse of the marvelous. I'm trying to say, all of these ordinary things, people shopping and driving their cars, going to the park, waiting in line at the theater, sending their kids to preschool or visiting the hospital, are all amazing when you think about them. And then when you think about them is usually when you're forced to, unless you're some sort of mystic. And when you're forced to is usually when they start to break down, if you've always been accustomed to them working. Or maybe when you come, when you come from somewhere else, where things work differently. Say, a quiet seaside hillside suburb where the local gang overruns the police briefly due to an extraterrestrial intervention in history, for example. Or when you're immersed in a new culture, in a new language, as will happen later in the game. Noticing the differences within what is, the extraordinariness of the ordinary, as well as the ordinariness of the extraordinary, because after all, something strange must happen in order for there to be a story worth telling. 
something like this. We might notice how some of the parents have gone to the valley and not come back. How there's people with blue faces who fight you out of the blue. And there's strange turns of events whereby an underworld figure, Everdred, turns out to have a conscience and wants to offer a reward. And it's fine, I guess, that Cash is the only sort he can conceive of for bringing Paula back safely. And her parents, who we've mentioned, they carry on running the Polestar Preschool despite their daughter's disappearance. Amazing. And the kidnapper was your next-door neighbor. To go back to the wad of cash, though, this idea of payment for life uh, is, is an old one. But this money is not depositable or spendable. Somehow it's not actually quantifiable, really. It's more representative and less liquid currency. Its only function is to free the runaway five from their Groundhog Day gig, endlessly repeating at the theater they're in debt to, called Chaos. Again, more on that next week, and the Blues Brothers, of course. Anyway, at least integrity, honor, do not seem to be completely abandoned in either Tucson or Happy Happy Village. For all their flaws, the Happy Happiests do not mob you, as they could, and not all of them even attack you. It says the insane cult has trapped you when you encounter one who does. But others will make jokes about getting the wrong color. Green, green. Or else they are so entranced by chanting and slowly walking in circles, they don't even try to come after you. They're beyond that level of insanity, and are apparently harmless again. Nevertheless, they do trap you, simply by their presence, in a human labyrinth. And combined with the music playing in there, this resemblance to a clan meeting makes this part of the game the most unsettling so far. Even their appearance had to be altered in the U.S. release, removing the letters HH from their forehead, which by their repetition as much as their actual appearance on screen harken back to KKK, and then adding a pom-pom on the end of their long hood cum hat dealie. Of course, their, their obsession with color is not quite the same as skin color, but the association seems clear. Anyway, the kinds of happy that one can be, riding the bike and smiling, or painting the world blue, or painting the town red. These seem like false alternatives. The game instead holds in store a happiness of smiles and tears, which I think encompasses them all. So, the pursuit of happiness, that phrase, is easy to paint with a broad brush. After all, even the kidnapper realizes he went too far once he's treading his little pen with his mask on, like the cow next door with it's blue paint job, and then that's cleaned off. And then everyone is grateful to you for showing them the error of their ways, starting with Carpenter, the cult leader. But Pokey, your neighbor, somehow is immune to this. He pretends to apologize, then backs away slowly, just like he did at the start of the game, and then turns tail, unrepentant. And I don't know if it's his innocence, not realizing the effect that what he's doing will have on himself and others. Or if it's intentionally his greed, knowing he'll get another chance. Some combination of both. Anyway, you can't fight him. He escapes. You can't bring him to his senses. And you can't do anything about the Mani Mani statue either, since Carpenter still stands in the way. 
I'm a little fuzzy as to its movements, since they happen off stage, as it were. So we'll have to keep a close eye on what people say as the game progresses. I think Everdread mentions he'd like a closer look at it. But how did it get from Lyre's underground room to the attic of Carpenter's church? How do you tell an idol from a work of art? Or an idol from a god, for that matter? How do you tell a wholesome church from a cult? I know it when I see it might be a good enough criterion for the court, but the court of conscience is a more discerning judge. So, what is left to do when the ideal turns out to be just like the rest? I think it's up to you. If you think the king is actually a tyrant, declare independence. Take arms if you must. If you think the emperor wears no clothes, hand him your coat. Shake the dust from your shoes. Just know that it will mean you need to frame a new constitution entirely, or just return home through the Valley of Peaceful Rest on the rebuilt bridge. But to bemoan the state of things while doing nothing about it seems like pusillanimity, however that word is said. Anyway, laziness, or worse, let's read and let's talk about something better. Let's not forget our true teachers. These kinds of works, which contain so much of the good and the bad for us to learn from. To sum up, we had a scatter plot of shorter excerpts again this week, on which I thought to draw the old box and whiskers diagram and doodle in a cat's face, a cat crouched by the door. We covered some Tucson, some Happy Happy Village, touched on Gulliver and Raymond Sebon and the Founding Fathers. And we'll look forward to the Runaway Five and Blues Brothers next week. Till then, take care. <laughs>